Hello everyone. Sure is good to see you this evening. Thanks for joining us for our Thursday night Bible study. And uh, there's plenty of snacks. Those of you at home, you're missing out. Uh, we're glad that you're listening in and watching tonight uh, via live stream, but uh, you're missing the fellowship and you're missing some good food tonight. I don't mean that to beat, beat you down, but just to tell you there's a blessing in coming together. And if you can, come on over. It's not too late. You can drive on over, get here, and, and join us. Those who can't, we're just glad you're tuning in the way you are. And the Spirit of God brings us all together anyway, doesn't He? And uh, so we're thankful for that. Well, we're going to get into the Word tonight. We're in Revelation chapter 13. Before I get started, I want to bring you up to speed on some necessary uh, uh, information about the calendar and scheduling. Uh, the next three weeks on Thursday night, we will be meeting here, but I will not be teaching the next three weeks. For the next two weeks, Paul Westcott is going to teach a class uh, on how to vote biblically. And he's going to walk us through some of the constitutional changes in the state of Florida that are being proposed that we'll be voting on. But he really wants to lay out what it looks like and how we vote biblically and really giving us an understanding as Christians that really it's not about party vote. It's really about God vote. It's about trying to honor the Lord in our, in our uh, vote. Amen. And so um, I would encourage you, if you can't come the one night, come the next night, the, the following week, uh, two weeks in a row. It, won't be this, it, it will be the same teaching, so you don't want to have to come both weeks. And then the third week, uh, so three weeks from tonight, we are going to have a sacred assembly right here where we are going to gather together and we're going to be praying uh, specifically for our world, for our nation. And you say, what are we praying? We're praying for repentance. Amen. We're praying that God would grab hold of this nation once again and he would reveal to us our sins and that we would fall on our face before him and repent and that we would see a revival hit our land. Amen. So we're praying for the world. We're praying for our nation. We're going to be praying for our community. We're going to be praying for the Lord's work in our church. We want to see souls in our community come to Christ. I, I don't care what church they attend. I'm thankful. I, I pray for all the churches. This church is no better than any other church. We, where Christ is being preached, where the Word of God is being proclaimed, we stand with them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want to see an outpouring of God in those churches unlike anything we've ever seen. Amen. When you, you know, I grew up in Daytona Beach and I, my, my paper route was, was along the, the river. And in fact, I even had to take my bike to the yacht club and, and go down the, the, the uh, docks, riding my bike on the docks, throwing uh, newspapers in the backs of these big yachts, these boats. That's what I did. And it was one thing I learned as a kid was that when I would, when the tide would rise, in that bay, in that area, all those yachts, all the ships would rise. Not one, not two, all of them. Amen. And that's what I want to see happen. I want to see all of God's people blessed. I want to see more people coming to Christ. I want the tide in our churches to go up, the, the rise of spiritual fervor and a desire to, to work together. And because God wants all of us to experience the blessing of that, not just one or two churches. 
And so we want to participate. And our way of participating right now, at least what God's leading us to do, is to pray as a church. And out of that, I pray that it'll bring other churches together and we pray together for the same thing. So anyway, that's going to happen in three weeks. I want every one of you to be here. Those of you who are watching by live stream, we want you to come that third, that, uh, in three weeks and be part of the Sacred Assembly. It's going to be a powerful night of prayer. It's not going to be about worship. It's not going to be about preaching. It's not going to be about fellowship. It's going to be about prayer. Amen. Where it's a night to pray, to come together and seek God. So, amen. That's, that's the next three weeks. And then we'll pick up Revelation chapter 14 in four weeks. Okay, four weeks from tonight. All right, well, let's go ahead and, and, and uh, unpack Revelation 13. Uh, it's a great chapter. This is probably one of the most famous chapters in the book of Revelation. People like to go to this chapter a lot. Well, the reason for it is because we learn more about two of the, 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 two of the characters that are going to really manifest during the Great Tribulation. We're going to learn about uh, the Antichrist tonight, and we're going to learn about the false prophet. Those are two of the characters. If you remember in our focus on Revelation, you really tie Revelation 13 to chapters 12 and 14. All three of those chapters are a section where we learn of these interesting characters that take place during the seven-year tribulation. Last time we met, chapter 12, we looked at the woman who represented Israel, if you remember. And then we looked at the dragon. Who did the dragon represent? Satan himself, okay? And then the male child, referring to Jesus. Uh, the angel, Michael, who is the head of the angelic host. And then the offspring of the woman, representing Gentiles who come to faith in the tribulation and how the enemy will, will come against Israel and will really try to, to bring them down. Uh, interesting, tonight we're going to look at the beast out of the sea, which is representative of Antichrist, the Antichrist. And then we're also going to look at the beast out of the earth, and that's representing the false prophet. So let's get started with prayer, and then we'll get right into our text. Lord, as we have just talked about revival and repentance, God, I pray that repentance would come to the forefront of our nation. After watching the debate the other night, it saddened my heart. In the first three minutes, I was just deeply grieved that this is what our nation has come to and how much we need you, Father. We need you to, once again, stir our hearts, bring us to a place of repentance, bring us into a, a, a fruit of repentance where revival breaks out, Amen. where we see the church rise up and serve the purpose for which she was created, where we see villages and townships and cities across this land begin to be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit because God's people are one and we're all working for the same cause, and that is to bring man to God, to point them to Jesus that man might be redeemed. Amen. We want to see salvation, Lord. And so, Father, even tonight we're praying this way, knowing that in, in three more weeks we're going to have a special night of gathering and prayer. But, Lord, even before we get there, Start stirring in our hearts. Start leading us to fast, 
to take time. Maybe it's a meal uh, every day. Maybe it's, it's one day a week. Whatever the fast would be, to dedicate ourselves to the focus of seeking God for our own sins and repenting of our sins and coming clean so that we can be vessels of righteousness and we can pray for others. We can intercede in their behalf. But Father, first do a work in us. Tonight, Lord, we pray that as we study the Word of God, it would not give us a sense of haughtiness or arrogance that we know this, we know that, that we're as if we're some kind of, we're the truth bearers. Lord, uh, we, it's only by the grace of God that we know the truth. Amen. Only by your grace that you reached us and saved us. And now by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, we're able to understand truth. So we receive it, Lord, like little children coming to the table. And we're thanking you that you're giving us this teaching tonight, this teaching from your word. And we want to take it and not just chew it and, and swallow it, but Lord, we want to think on it. We want to, we want to apply it to our lives that we would be able to be more effective as witnesses for Christ in our day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight as we focus on Revelation 13, again, we need to see it in, in context of chapter 12 and 14 where we see these seven figures that show up in the Great Tribulation. Figures of heaven, figures of earth, figures from below the earth who show up in the seven-year tribulation. So tonight we're going to focus on verse 1. It says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on, the, on its horns. That would be crowns. Ten crowns on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. So John's, uh, the first thing I want to say to you is what John is seeing, it's like he's been transported from heaven to earth in this vision. And in this vision, God shows him as he stands on the seashore, he sees this beast come up out of the sea. Don't think, though that we, or those who live during the seven-year tribulation, are going to see this beast with, with seven heads and ten horns. That's not what they're going to see. What, he's what God is describing to John is the character and nature of what those who live on the earth will see at that time. It's not that they're going to see this beast the way it's described. God could have just given John a mugshot of Antichrist and said, there he is, this is what he looks like. Um, he didn't. And the reason he didn't is because John's not looking for a mugshot. John just, John's not interested in knowing what kind of facial features the guy has, what color hair he has, how big of a nose he has. John is in this to learn of the character and nature of the Antichrist. And that's exactly what God wants him to know, so that's what God presents to him as a picture. And so just understand that. This is a heavenly vision describing an earthly event that's going to be taking place in the last days. And verse 1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. When you and I think of the sea, we think of the beauty of God's creation, don't we? We, we think of the coral reefs, the color. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity. I know I've watched it on TV like you have. And when you watch it in a high-definition TV, it is gorgeous. But there's nothing like being there. 
And I used to dive when I was younger, and we lived in Palm Beach County, and I would go out, you know, 60 feet deep, and we would dive down and sit in what I would, all I can describe it as is an amphitheater of coral. And I would sit on the sand smack dab in the middle of this amphitheater of coral, coral that rose up 15 feet high around me. And I would just sit there. And the longer I sat without movement, the more life would come out of the coral. Until finally, this thing is nothing but all these beautiful colors, uh, marine life, plant life. It's all just vividly coming alive in front of you. It, if, if anything shouts the glory of God in the creation of God, uh, it would be what's under the water. It's amazing to me. But I got to tell you, you know, and some of you have never dove, but you love the ocean too. You, you go there in the morning for sunrise or you go there in the evening for sunset. It's a beautiful place to hang out. Some of you go and you sunbathe, okay? I don't like to sunbathe. I've never liked sunbathing. If I go to the beach, I want to be doing something, whether it's on a surfboard or a skimboard or fishing or something. I just can't lay there and let the sun bake my skin. Although when we were young, some of you, how many of you would agree you, could, you can identify with When you're young and stupid, you would put oil on your body. You would oil up and go lay out in the sun. How many of you would raise a hand if you've been there? There you go, see? We've come a long way, baby. We used to be pretty ignorant, but now we, we know better, right? Okay. Ancient Israel never had these wonderful thoughts and feelings about the ocean. They were not a seafaring people, ever. They were an agrarian people. They lived in rural communities. They are farmers. They're ranchers, but they're not sea people. In fact, in all of the Bible, if you want to find Israel connected to the sea, there's only one place where you'll find that Israel actually had a navy. And that is found under King Solomon. He actually built a navy. He had ships. But here's the interesting thing. When you study that, you find that Solomon couldn't get the Israelites to be the sailors on the ships. So he went to the king of Tyre, and they provided the sailors for Israel. <laughs> That's how much they were against the sea. And let me tell you why. Because to them, the sea represented chaos, something that's uncontrollable, something that's unpredictable. And they have history showing throughout the Old Testament, and of course we know of stories in the New Testament, where they had to deal with the sea. It was as if to them the sea was against God. Now, not that the sea could overpower God. God always overpowered the sea. He did that at the Red Sea, right? He pulled back the waters. They had that experience. But they're not sea-going people. And so here we see coming out of this chaotic, unpredictable, ferocious, uncontrollable sea is this beast. It's just another vivid picture for them. Uh, Psalm 74, verse 12. Just write it down. I'll, don't turn. Psalm 74, verse 12 and 13. Yet God, my King, is from, old, uh, from of old, working salvation 
in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. So that's what the little Israeli boys and girls were learning, that there are sea monsters. So stay away from the sea. Psalm 89, verse uh, 8 and 9. Psalm 89, verse 8 and 9. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you, st you still them. So they see the picture of the sea being uncontrollable, but their God had power over the sea. Isaiah 57, 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. So in the vision that John has, he sees this beast coming forth from this place that's identified with evil and chaos. And the ancient Greek, by the way, the ancient Greek word translated beast here has the idea of a wild, dangerous animal. Because John calls him a beast and not a dragon, which is what we find in chapter 12, the last chapter we studied. We saw a dragon who also... Uh, uh, is like this beast in the description, but it's different. That's not, that was Satan. This is not Satan, and I'll explain why in just a moment. Any creature with seven heads would be hard to kill. This creature had seven heads and had ten horns. Seven heads. You, so you, you shoot one in the head, or shoot this creature in the head, but you got six more heads. Not easy to kill. Uh, horn, by the way, heads speak of power. They speak of, of something that is strong. Horns are like that as well. The more horns, the more powerful, the more damage that they can do. Ten horns here, okay? Uh, this likeness to Satan is just one of the things that identifies this beast with the Antichrist. Because if you go back to chapter 12, we see the same kind of thing being spoken about Satan. Okay? Uh, the word Antichrist only appears in the Bible five times in four verses. Four of the five are in one uh, in, in 1 John, and then one verse is in 2 John. For, uh, go ahead and turn, if you will, because we're going to refer to this again and again tonight. So I'd like for you to turn to it and maybe underline it. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. It's one of the places where the word Antichrist is used. In fact, it's not just Antichrist singular, but in the same verse, or the next verse, John also refers to Antichrist plural. So we go to 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour... And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Okay? John was saying this 2,000 years ago. Do we see Antichrists, plural, today? Yes, we do. Will we continue to see them? Yes, we will. But there will come a time, and what I believe, the way I interpret Revelation and Daniel and Jesus' words in Matthew 24, and Paul's words in various epistles, is I believe that, there that the church will be raptured prior to the tribulation, prior to the seven-year tribulation. Amen. That's what I believe. 
I respect others who see it differently when they, when they will tell me from the Word of God how they interpret it. If you'll tell me from the Word why you believe what you believe, I have to respect that. I don't respect anybody who just says, well, my thought is, my thinking, my, and my way of thinking, and my... That's all it is. It's just vomit coming up. Who cares what your opinion is? We all have opinions, right? Okay? But the reality is, long before you had an opinion, God had the right answer. And long after you're gone and your, your opinion dies out, God's truth will still remain. So what we really want is God's opinion. Where God is black and white in Scripture, we really have a, a, a strong position. Where there's gray area would be in eschatology. It's not black and white. I can make my points about eschatology and uh, a pre-trib position. Others make a post-trib position. Others make an an millennial position. There's all kinds of positions, as long as they're based on the Word. So we don't really know for sure. Nobody can say for absolute certainty, but I, but I feel confident in what I believe. It's the position that I hold. And in that position, uh, the church will exit. Jesus will rapture the church, and then the tribulation period will begin. So what we're reading in chapter 12 are these two uh, images. One is, it's not an image, they're actually human beings. One is the Antichrist, the second is the false prophet, okay? And they are going to come up in that seven-year period. All right, now, let's just keep moving here. Um, in 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. Many people have formed uh, their opinions of Antichrist from popular movies. And the, the name Antichrist is the most common reference to uh, this person who's going to come up in the tribulation. Um, the Bible refers to him as Antichrist, but the Bible refers to him in many other titles as well. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 2, he doesn't refer to Antichrist. He refers to him in various ways, and we'll look at some of those in just a moment. But I think what's important here is that there's this, you know, this picture that we have, that many people have, even lost people have, through these movies that have come out about the Antichrist. What were the, the Omen, or what were the, some of the movies that they've had? Where it's some little kid who's born, you know, of an animal, a jackal, and, uh, and then he grows up, and Satan protects him, and he kills different little childhood friends and kills aunts and uncles and whoever gets in his way. And then he rises up, and he becomes the Antichrist, and you pull back his hair, and you've got 666 buried under his hairline. Uh, that whole thing, forget it. Throw it out. Really. If you want to know about Antichrist, the only place is the Word of God. Amen not Hollywood's version. So let's try to get a better understanding of who Antichrist really is. Let's begin by understanding what the title Antichrist means. The prefix, which is anti, gives us this idea, and this is where most people believe, he's the opposite of Christ. He's anti-Christ, the opposite of, which is not incorrect. But I don't think it's the best way to view him or, or, or think of him. 
I think a better way to think of Antichrist is not opposite of, but instead of. Instead of. Most people have focused on the idea of the opposite of Jesus. And that makes them think of Antichrist as this evil person who does these evil things. Jesus does good things. Antichrist does bad things. Jesus is righteous. Antichrist is wicked. Okay? We get this, this complete diametric opposite when we think of Antichrist. The problem with that is that when he comes, he's not going to look or speak opposite. He's actually going to come across as a very sharp-looking person who has it all together, who is very charismatic, and the best way to describe Antichrist in the first uh, three years, he's a winner. The guy's a winner. I mean, I'm telling you right now, people are going to be impressed with him. That Therein lies the deception of Satan. So if you always think of Antichrist as opposite of Jesus, you're going to miss him. And he is opposite. The words that he speaks so eloquently, they're lies. But the way he says them, the way he presents himself, you don't think of it as a lie. Okay? So we shouldn't get carried away with the opposite of Jesus' impression. You'd be better served to think of him as instead of Jesus. He's going to look incredible. He's going to do great things. He's going to be a winner all the way. Now, 1 John 2.18, the verse that we just read, John also spoke of the Antichrist in plural form, Antichrist. And what he's referring to are others who will come in the likeness of Antichrist. But here's the difference between the plural use of the word and the singular use. When it's the sing singular use, you're talking about someone who is literally possessed by Satan. When you talk about the Antichrist plural, you're talking about those who are led by demonic spirits. It's still demonic. It's still evil. It's just like Antichrist, only Satan is not in them. Demonic spirits are in them. When anti the Antichrist shows up, Satan will possess him. Okay? There's your difference. Now, we commonly call this coming world leader the Antichrist, but the Bible gives him other names and titles. Let me give you some. Write these down, if you will, okay? I'll go slow for you. The first one is Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. In Daniel 7, 8, he's known as the little horn. The little horn. And then in Daniel chapter 8, verse 23, he's known as the king of fierce countenance. The king of fierce countenance. Daniel 8, 23. In Daniel 9, 26, he's known as the prince that shall come. P is capitalized there. It's speaking of a person. The prince shall come, Daniel 9.26. The willful king in Daniel 11.36 through 45. He's known as the willful king, Daniel 11.36 through 45. The willful king. Here's another one. In the New Testament, John chapter, uh, John chapter 5, verse 43. 
He's known as the one who comes in his own name. The one who comes in his own name, John 5.43. And then it also says that whom Israel will receive as Messiah. They'll receive him. They'll be duped into thinking he's Messiah. And then here's one that we're familiar with in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. 2 Thessalonians 2.3. He's called the son of perdition. The man of sin. The lawless one. All three are references to Antichrist. The son of perdition, the man of sin, the lawless one. Now, let's continue here as we look at our text. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. This is something different about the beast compared to the dragon of the last chapter who is Satan himself, okay? Uh, Satan had seven diadems on his head, okay? This beast, the Antichrist, has ten. The crowns of the dragon expressed his strength and power because seven is a number associated with strength and, com strength and completeness. The ten crowns of the beast here in this chapter expresses his rule over a group of nations, a rule over people. Uh, well, chapter 12 spoke of, of Satan with his seven crowns. Chapter uh, 13 is the Antichrist with ten crowns. And what's interesting to remember is uh, there's this, and this is where a lot of people go different directions looking at Revelation, is many think that the Antichrist is actually nations that have come together. It's not a person. It's, it's nations. It's an empire. Uh, in Daniel, he is re referring to the nations as he talks about the first three nations and then the fourth nation that always would come after the third would be the Roman Empire. And then out of that empire would come the empire of the enemy. Okay, so But here in chapter 13, Revelation, this, this, represent, this represents a person does not represent a nation. Now, it does express that he has rule over ten nations. Okay? So he has the rule of, ten, of a group of ten nations. The figure of ten horns also associates this beast with the beast of Daniel 7.7. 7. Now, um, I don't want to labor here too long. I'd like to just keep moving here. But I will say this, that we don't see the reign of Jesus on earth in the way that Daniel prophesied. He does not refer to the reign of Christ. But we do see that the Roman Empire will resume in some way. And I, I'll be honest with you, I think what that reference, when, when commentators speak of the Roman Empire, because that's what Daniel re was referring to, that in the future, at the, at the tribulation, it's going to be the nations of Europe that have come together. Now, you know, we already have the euro dollar. We already have, you know, the European Union. Um, and it's before it was like seven nations, and then it was ten, and people got all excited. Oh, now it's ten. You know, this is the, the, the end. Now it's like 13, and then it goes to another. It fluctuates. It goes all over the place. But I'm just telling you, in the end, it's going to be ten. Whether there's a merging of nations, whether there's an addition or a 
reduction, but there's going to be a final number of 10. And we'll talk about that too in just a moment. Uh, but all indications here in Revelation 13 point to this beast being a man, though he is closely identified with this world-dominating government made up of 10 nations. There are several reasons why we're led to believe that it's a man and not a reference to a consortium of nations. I'll tell you why. Uh, because the beast is worshipped as God. No nation is worshipped as God. But there have been wicked, evil nations like the Roman Empire for hundreds and hundreds of years with 30, 40 different uh, emperors who were treated like God. When you think of the Roman Empire, you think of emperors. When you think of the Third Reich in the 1930s and 40s, you think of who? Hitler, a man. If you're going to worship, you don't worship the Third Reich, you worship Hitler. That's how he presented himself, to be above all, and you, you, know, you salute him and you worship him. Uh, another reason why the Antichrist is a man and not a symbol of an empire is that an image is set up of the beast, and the whole world is commanded to worship it. Through history, men have often bowed down to an image of a political leader. One last convincing reason is a man, that it's a man and not an empire, is the fact that in the end, Christ will bring damnation upon Antichrist. What does that damnation result in? He is thrown in the lake of fire. Nations, empires, will not be thrown in the lake of fire. Souls will go to the lake of fire. It's a human being. It's a person. Okay? One last convincing reason it's a man and not the empire is the fact that in the end, uh, he's called the son of perdition. 2 Thessalonians 2.3, I already gave you that verse. Who else was called the son of perdition? Judas. Judas was called the son of perdition. And what does it say about Judas? Let me give it to you. It actually says uh, that Judas was overtaken by Satan. Satan entered him. He possessed him. The same son of perdition, Judas, was taken by Satan in terms of possession. The beast that we're speaking of, the Antichrist, will also, he's the son of perdition in Scripture, and he too will be possessed by Satan. So that refers to a man. Satan doesn't possess uh, inanimate objects that way. He's possessing um, people. That's really what he's after. Uh, this world leader is empowered and supported by Satan. In a real sense, the beast takes the offer. If you think about it this way, Satan presents the same bait to Antichrist that he presented to Jesus in the, in the, in the wilderness. Jesus, you know, he, hey, look, stand up here on this pinnacle. You can see the whole world and all the nations and all the tongues and people, and I'll give all of it to you. And Satan, Jesus, he, he, he quoted the word of God, and he rejected it. Not the Antichrist. He takes it. I want it. Okay? So there's a totally different picture here. Again, what is that? It's the opposite of Jesus. It's the opposite of Jesus. So it's most likely that Satan himself takes possession of this man 
And this is what makes him exceptional. And he is exceptional in every way. The guy in the beginning is extremely well-liked, has woo factor out the wazoo, and this guy is a winner. Everything he touches turns to gold. He is well-respected by the European nations. He wins their trust. He even wins the trust of Israel. World peace will be established under this guy, but it's a false peace as we learned. It won't last. It's not real. He dupes Israel. Okay? So, verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. He's like a chameleon, you know, you can chop off his tail and it grows a new one. Okay? Um, it's like a stone crab, you know, you, you, what they do with stone crab, they, you're not allowed to take a stone crab out of the river. Okay? We have them right here in Indian River County. You're not allowed to take them. What you are allowed to do is take their right claw. You can break off the claw and you throw the stone crab back and guess what happens? What happens, Scott? He grows, they grow a new claw. So they're all, you're self-sustaining, you know, it's kind of neat. Uh, that's, that's this Antichrist. One of his seven heads gets blown off or something happens. Uh, it's a mortal wound, the scripture says. And yet he makes this incredible comeback. What does that liken to? What does that imitate? Christ on the cross, his death and what? His resurrection. Satan has never been a creative being. He does not possess the ability to create anything. All he can do is imitate God who is the creator. He really doesn't have the power to do anything other than what he's already seen God do. And so what does he do? He tries to take what God's made or take what God's doing and twist it, contort it, and present it in a way that it looks like he's doing it when honestly... He's never created anything. Uh, it, John 13, 27, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. This, this is Judas. He entered into Judas. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. The son of perdition was, was taken by Satan. He was possessed by Satan. That's why... This Antichrist has the power to do many things when he's on the earth. Supernatural power. Supernatural. The fact that he recovers from a mortal wound uh, will only increase his fame and popularity in the world. Okay? The, the world's going to marvel at the miraculous. The world's always marveled at the miraculous. Always got excited about the miraculous. And Christians, unfortunately are driven, many of them, driven by the miraculous. They go from one miraculous to the next. Look at the Roman Catholic Church. They have all these signs and these miraculous experiences with blood coming out of a picture on the wall, you know? And everybody has to f get there so they can see it, put their hand on the wall and touch it. Man has always been, been driven by the miraculous, wanting to experience supernatural. The problem is... Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet, they specialize in the miraculous. 
So if you're being led by the miraculous, you, can, you are opening the door wide for deception. I didn't say that, the, that everything miraculous or signs and wonders are all evil. God, if you're a Christian, you're going to experience God in who he is. And sometimes it is miraculous. Amen? When we see somebody who's healed. My brother was telling me about a lady in his church who uh, she's taking this, this vitamin and now all of a sudden she's pancreatic cancer and it's diminishing. It's going away. The doctor said, I don't know what you're doing, but keep doing it. Well, they're praying for her, number one, and she's taking this vitamin. And so people are just always driven and drawn to whatever looks like it's supernatural. It's a supernatural in, in, intervention. A lot of it is demonic. A lot of it is demonic today. Christians are being fooled and duped by the enemy. Uh, and so um, this is probably a good time to point out that everything that Satan does is simply an imitation. Verse 4, And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? As people worship the beast, and they bow down before his government, whatever his power is, you know, that he sets up on the earth, it may be that they do not know that they are bowing down to actually Satan himself. But that's what they're doing. Because he is possessed by Satan. And because they don't have the withal to understand and discern between what is truth and what is counterfeit, they worship Satan himself. Um, 2 Corinthians 11.14, write it down. 2 Corinthians 11.14. Scripture says that Satan has the ability to transform himself. Listen, we always think of him as this horrifying dragon. He's this terrible, ugly, he's got, he's got, you know, he's got a red pigmentation and he's got horns coming out of it and he's got a cape and he's got a... It says that he converts or transforms himself into an angel of light. In fact, it goes further and says that it's no surprise if his... Paul said, so it's no surprise if his servants, if demons also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. But understand, their end will correspond to their deeds. They were duping people, and in the end, they're going to be duped. They're going to end up in hell, a lake of fire. So Satan has power. The last part of that verse, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? The world will be amazed at the power of this beast as he rises in power and will believe he is so mighty that he cannot be conquered by anyone. And by the way, for a short time, that will be true. Nobody will stand against him. Those who get saved during the tribulation and are on the earth, they will not have power of God to overcome him. He will overcome them. But understand, he will not overcome and conquer their faith. He only has the ability to overcome and conquer their physical bodies. God has not given him the ability to conquer faith. Amen. He cannot do that. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. We've seen that so many times already in Revelation. How long is that? Three and a half years. So in the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation, He's going to be given this ability to exercise authority. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, against 
his name and his dwelling against heaven. That is those who dwell in heaven. So even who's going to be in heaven at that time? I believe the church will be in heaven. He's going to, he's going to offer up his blasphemies against the church. We got rid of those people. We got them out of here. They're no longer a, a hindrance to the world, holding us back from all the things that we know are good and that we need to, you know, we, now we've got global warming that we can do everything we want to do to push that forward because all the Christians are gone. I mean, it's ridiculous stuff. He's going to use anything he can. He, he, listen, a better name than Antichrist for him is the blasphemer B because the beast is a man who speaks against God and everything God stands for. He, he speaks against God's name. He speaks against God's tabernacle in heaven. He speaks against those who dwell in heaven. In ancient Rome, some of the emperors blasphemed God in various ways, but they didn't fulfill the prophecies at the end. So they, that means they could not possibly serve as Antichrist. As powerful as the blasphemer is, Antichrist, his rule is going to be short-lived. He will be given authority to continue for 42 months. The beast continues without restraint by God for a period of 42 months. Okay, that's three and a half years. The duration of the period shows that the beast has full reign for the first three and a half of the final seven years. But throughout his reign, he will bring terror once he goes for the abomination of desolation. But listen to this, even no matter what he does on the earth, no matter what power he possesses, no matter what he conquers on the earth, including Christians, putting them to death, listen, it's all under God's authority. God sovereignly allows him for a short period to have the capacity to do what he does. He didn't steal it from God. He didn't usurp God and come up with this power to do it. God gave it to him, allows him to do what he does. Very under, important that we understand that. Verse 7, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. So he's granted to him to make war with the saints. Revelation 12 described for us the broad reach of satanic persecution during the tribulation period. Here the main instrument of that persecution is revealed. The government of the beast will persecute and kill all those who do not bow and worship the beast. So this, this world government that's going to come in, the, that he's going to be in control of, the government is the one that will force us to worship the beast, those who are on the earth. Now, where does, America, where does the United States play into all this? I'm going to tell you something. Once this, this European Union, this group of nations, ten nations, are finally come together. You know, we've had the euro for quite a while now. Before it came out, we really wondered if they would completely render the U.S. dollar useless. Well, that didn't happen. And there's been times where it's been way above America, our, our dollar, and then there's times where as currency it's a little bit maybe even or a little below. It's struggled. But, the, but here's the problem. Once those, whoever those nations are, and it might be a merging of nations that come together, once he establishes the peace in that region and he brings those ten nations together, 
what they can bring to the table economically, America cannot compete against. There is no way. Because you're talking about nations and economics that exist there that are not together right now. They're fragmented. But once they finally come together, there's no way this nation can sustain itself against that. So, you know, I've heard everything in the book about America and its role in the end and all. I'm, I'm telling you, I don't think that's true. I'm, I'm now, that's my opinion. Okay? That's not the Bible. Except that I'm basing it on the Word of God. What I know is going to happen in, in Europe at that time. It will be a new imitation of the Roman Empire. Okay? Um, when it says that the beast was able to conquer the saints, that doesn't mean he could conquer their faith, okay, as I said earlier. In fact, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. So those who get saved, the church will be gone, but those who get saved during the seven-year tribulation, they are not to fear the one who can take their, their physical body. Because they know he cannot take their soul. <laughs> okay? Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's the one you want to fear. Who is that? God. Okay? Be God-fearing. Oh, God, raise up pastors in our community who fear you more than man, who will proclaim the truth in righteousness, who will be unwavering in their stand for truth, who will look out at that congregation and not kowtow to any face, any name that's in that crowd. Amen. I once heard of a pastor down south. My good friend had the pastor over to his house after church um, because he was, he's part of their family. They, they're all uh, related. But my friend doesn't worship at this pastor's church. He just had him over for dinner after church. And, and this pastor was there, and several of the family members worship in his church. And this discussion got started in the living room. One of the followers of this pastor said, Oh, my goodness, did you see, Pastor? It was just amazing to watch how when you saw Donald Trump walk in and sit down in our service today, how you, you changed that message and how it ministered, how it helped. And my friend... His father was present, and his father said, well, what is he, a coward? Right there with the preacher sitting there. Is he a coward? Donald Trump walks in, and now you're going to change the word that God gave you? We don't change for anybody. Amen. God's word does not bow down to man. Man must bow down to God's word. Every time. You know what? If we don't prepare people for what's coming and be truthful and honest with them about what's coming, and call sin, sin, instead of a mistake, and stop trying to make people feel so comfortable so they'll want to come back next week. Just love people the way they're, they're supposed to be loved, yes. But don't change the Bible. Preach sin. Preach repentance. Preach revival. Call men to a change in their life through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Be honest with it. And I'll tell you what, you go home from preaching that kind of a message, you have peace in your heart. You, you don't worry about anything. If, if man doesn't like it, 
they'll get rid of you. I know all about that. <laughs> but you don't change it. You just let the Lord win. You're not there fearing man. You're there fearing God. You're gonna, if you're a preacher or you're a Bible teacher, you're a Sunday school teacher, you're going to stand before God one day. The Bible says that a teacher is going to be held in double honor, but it also says that they're going to be held accountable double too. I mean, you're going to be held to a greater accountability before God because you, the word was given to you. How did you present it? Hmm. So these saints that are overcome by the beast, they're those who are saved after the church is actually raptured. Okay? And we talked all about that earlier, where we talked about the, the, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. We talked about the, uh, the two witnesses. We talked about the angels that fly uh, around and proclaim the name of the Lord and that He's just in what He's doing. And so the gospel's being proclaimed even though the church is gone. Amen. Okay? Some people think that when the church leaves, that the, the Holy Spirit leaves too. That's not true. He's still very much at work. Otherwise, people wouldn't get saved in the tribulation, right? Amen. Now, the, the, it's, it's a change. There's a change, but it's, it's, he's still very much at work. Verse 8, And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So this world dictator will demand and receive worship from the whole, from the, look at that, all the earth. But here's the thing. You worship him? You're going to pay a price. You're going to pay a price. Now, this is very interesting to me. He speaks here. Let me read that again for you. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. I want you to hear this tonight. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Your name was not written in the book of life when you got saved. It was always in the book of life before man was even created. Before man ever even sinned. God already had every single name that would be saved written in the book of life. Interesting here. Uh, if you worship the beast, your name's not in it. Those are mutually exclusive. You can't have it both ways. Christian, if you're listening, if you're watching, those of you that are present tonight, you cannot have it both ways. You say, well, how do I know if my name's written in the book of life? Because you won't worship the beast. Amen. You just won't. And it's also interesting to me. The lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Slain from the foundation of the world. Amen. Think about this now. Before the world was created, God already saw Jesus slain for you and I. God already knew that you would sin. God already knew that redemption needed to be applied for us long before the world was even created. 
That's what I'm just reading for you. The lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. This reminds us that God's plan of redemption was set in place before He ever created man who would need His redemption. That means God wasn't surprised by the fall of Adam. He wasn't surprised by the nature of man given to depravity. God isn't making it up as He goes along, okay? It's all going according to God's master, sovereign plan. If you are saved... God knew you were saved and your name's been written in the book of life long before your parents got together and, cre- and you were born. Amen. Isn't that, does that not comfort you tonight? Amen. That's how big God is. We get this idea that somehow we play this role where because I get saved, I know that my name's written in the book. No, 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 no. God already chose you. It's already a done deal. Remember, the second person of the Trinity had a relationship of love and fellowship with God the Father before the foundation of the world. You say, how do you know that's true? Okay, write it down. John chapter 17, verse 24. Let me just take you on a little journey here in the Scripture to substantiate these things that I'm saying so you don't think I'm nuts. John 17, 24. Jesus prayed, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. The Father already knew the names. May may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The second person of the Trinity was loved by the Father before the foundation of the world. How about this? The work of Jesus was ordained before the foundation of the world. First Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Write it down. First Peter 1, 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Nothing was a surprise. God already had a plan. Here's another one. God chose His redeemed before the foundation of the world. Every person whose name is written in the book of life, that all took place, as we said earlier, before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Write it down. Ephesians 1, 4. Even as He chose us in Him. He chose us. We did not choose Him. You're not that good that you can come to God out of your own thinking. The Bible says that in your heart, it's deceptive. It's deceitful above all things. It was God who chose you. God is the one who sent the Holy Spirit after you. Then God gave you the faith so that you could be saved. You didn't even come up with the faith. You didn't possess it. But look what it says in Ephesians. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. (laughs) I love that. Man, does that not give you a sense of security tonight? That you were found in God before you were ever sinning? (laughs) Before the first man ever sinned. Praise God. How about this? Names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And that's our text tonight that we just read, Revelation 13.8. Here's another one. The kingdom of heaven was prepared for the redeemed before the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, verse 34. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, listen now, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It was all there from the beginning. Good stuff, isn't it? Does that not comfort you? Does that not encourage your heart? Give you a sense of confidence of how much God loves you and what God has done for you? You don't do anything. Amen. It's not a do-do theology that God's after. It's, it's a done theology. It's already been done for you by Christ and through God. Amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's freeing, man. That's freeing. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. In our I'm back at our text. Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captive he go captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So just as God in his sovereignty has already made his choice and all, yet he does give man the ability to persevere. There's a responsibility on man. Look, I didn't, I didn't make that up. That's what the Scripture says. It says, if anyone must be slain with a sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Yes, your name is written in the book of life. So endure, persevere, be patient, walk by faith. Why? Because you're clothed in flesh, which means that you have the ability to not do those things that God's put upon you. Every day we fall short. Amen? Amen? Oh, come on now. Am I the only amener up here? I know I've fallen short every day. I was coming back from Sunrise, Florida, which is west of Fort Lauderdale today, and the rains were coming down, and man, this guy hit his brakes suddenly on the highway in front of me, and I thought, and I'm in, it's, the roads are wet. It's like that much water, you know. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And I'm easing into my brakes, and I had to literally get over in the median to get, so I didn't hit him. And, uh, and, and so, you know, there were a few Christian cuss words that wanted to come up. Um, holy cow! You know? I mean, I just, I, so that's, look, we can lose it at any time. Can we not? Okay. Does that mean that you're not saved? Does that mean, oh, God's like, oh, I'm taking your name out of the book of life. Your name was in there even though God knew that you would do that today. Amen. But that doesn't mean that you have a license to go and sin. Paul talks a lot about that, doesn't he? Amen. So, so press in. Persevere. Be patient. Walk by faith. Anyone who participates, though, in this plan or the directives of the beast will be judged with the beast. Don't think for a second that people on the earth who come off like they're Christians, but then they go along with his plan to a degree. They maybe serve in his organization, fulfilling his purposes. God says, you'll be given the sword just like he will. Amen. I mean, this is going to be a time when on the earth, you better let your yay be yay and let your nay be nay, because God's not going to play. There's no sitting on the fence in the tribulation. There really isn't any now either, right? Verse 11, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So, so last time we met, we talked about the dragon himself, who is Satan. And then tonight we've learned about the one coming out of the sea, who is the Antichrist. 
Now we learn about the, the false prophet. Okay? Rising out of the earth, it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So this creature represents someone like the beast rising from the sea because the same word beast is used to describe both of them. At the same time, this beast is very different. Okay, let me give you the differences. Okay, they're different in origin because one comes out of the sea, the other out of the earth. They're also different in rank because the second, this second beast is subordinate to the first. Okay, verse 13, or 13, 12 says that he causes the earth to worship the first beast. Okay, they're different in appearance. This, this one has a mild lamb-like appearance. And then this beast has two horns like a lamb, which could mean that this beast has authority in two realms. Maybe it's a religious realm and a political, who knows what it is? We don't really know. Or maybe he has two horns simply because that's how many horns a lamb has or a ram has. Okay, we don't know. But he spoke like a dragon. So here he's harmless, the, 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 this, this picture of some lamb that's harmless, at the same time, he speaks like Satan. He's not Satan, but he, he has this same, this same deceptive appeal, and he's just as demonic, okay? He's called the false prophet. You say, where? Okay, write it down. Here we go. Revelation 16, 13. Revelation 19, 20. Revelation 20, verse 10. Okay, so you have, you, what you have here, you have, this, you have this dragon, you have this first beast coming out of the sea, and you got this second beast coming from the land. What do you have there? You have another imitation by Satan. This is the whole unholy trinity. Satan is the father. The second beast, the Antichrist, is just that. Antichrist, the Son, and then you have what is a false or anti-Holy Spirit. What's the job description of this second beast? Let me give it to you. It exercises, verse 12, all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So this beast is essentially a satanic prophet who leads the world to worship the Antichrist and ultimately the dragon, Satan himself. So what does he do? What are his, some of the qualities of this guy? He can perform great signs. This beast rising from the, from the um, uh, earth does signs and wonders, so much so that he makes, this is what the text says, he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Who else did that? Elijah the prophet in 1 Kings, right? Elijah lined up, he told all the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, why don't you bring down, you know, bring down fire? Let's find out whose God is the true God. And, and if your God brings down fire, then we'll worship your God. If my God brings down fire, we're going to worship our God. 
And so he tells them, go ahead and do what you do to get the fire to come down. And they do all their things, ranting and raving, cutting their arms, squealing like pigs and praying like who knows what, doing all their little gimmicks, and nothing happens. And then he just prays a prayer. I want to tell you something. You don't have to work up emotion to think that God is working or that God is moving. Amen. That is the biggest lie of the enemy in this world today among Christians. They think, I've had Christians say to me, man, the Spirit of God's really moving over in that church. Oh, okay, what's happening? Tell me about that. Oh, well, man, people are getting knocked down and this and that. They talk about things that are done, that they think that's the, how you know that God's moving. I want to tell you something. The enemy can do those things. And I believe in many cases it is demonic. It's not of the Lord. I don't believe it is. I think we, and Satan is duping people with that nonsense. Let me tell you something. You take a person who just prays a simple prayer and God moves out of that prayer. Amen. Didn't have to show any emotion. I'm not against emotion, by the way. I just don't want my emotions to lead my faith. My emotions follow what I believe. Whether I see it or I don't see it doesn't change the fact that I believe it. If I've got to see it every day, that shows how weak your faith is. That's a weak faith. What we need is the Holy Spirit to move. And the movement of the Holy Spirit is found two ways. You want to know that the Spirit's moving? The best way to know the Spirit's moving is through love and the Word, truth. Truth and love. Amen. When you see truth and love, you are seeing the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul even talked about that, and he said, look, hey, all the gifts, all the things that you can do, that stuff's a sounding gong compared to love. You can talk all day long about the move of the Spirit in your church or in, in your little group, whatever your group is. I'm telling you right now, love is a, marked, is a marked position of the Holy Spirit. He will manifest in love, and then He will also manifest in truth. He will, the Bible says, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, that He will lead you into all truth. So we've got to be very careful, church, very careful. This guy spoke like a dragon, okay? With the dragon, the beast rising from the sea and the beast rising from the land, we have an unholy trinity. He has a job description. He performs great signs, and he deceives the world with these signs. Why? How can he deceive them? Because they don't know the truth. If you don't know what the authentic looks like and sounds like, how will you know what's deceptive, what's, what's fake, what's, what's inauthentic? You won't. You'll fall for it. There's always been a devilish supernaturalism in the world running alongside of the supernatural divine grace and salvation of God. That's why we should, shouldn't allow signs and wonders to lead us. Amen. In Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, God assumes that there will be supernatural works on behalf of false prophets and idols, and He warns His people to judge a worker of miracles by their message, not only by their works. Okay? In the days of Exodus, Moses performed miracles up to a point, and up to a point, they were matched by the miracles of those, uh, those magicians of Egypt. Remember that? Sometimes that's not the way of knowing, the way of God. Jesus also said that in the end times, false prophets would emerge and show great signs and wonders to deceive Jesus said that some 
who worked miracles even in his name were false followers and would perish in hell. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out devils in your name? Did we not do mighty miracles or works in your name? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, those of you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness. You created your own laws to impress men. You followed, you allowed demonic spirits to give you the ability to do things to imitate what I'm doing. Your lawless people, depart from me. Depart from me. And it was allowed, verse 15 of our text, it was allowed to breathe to the, uh, to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So the psalmist speaks to this in the Old Testament. This image of the Antichrist will be a different kind of idol. You know, in the psalmist, they would talk about how idols don't have eyes, they can't see, they don't have ears, they can't hear, they, can't, they don't have a mouth, they, they don't speak. Oh, yeah, you put eyes, ears, and mouth on them, but, but it's, they, okay, this is different. The false prophet will create an idol that people will fall down and worship, and it will actually have the ability to speak, to move around. I'm not talking, I mean, look, I used, when I was a kid, I was impressed by the Hall of Presidents at Disney World. Seeing Abe Lincoln up there talking and moving around like that, that was pretty cool. Okay, we're not talking some Disney gimmick here. This will be so moving that many will just be awed and worship this image. Okay? The idolatrous image is what Jesus, Daniel, and Paul spoke of in the abomination of desolation. That's in Matthew 9 20, I'm sorry, Matthew 24, 15. Daniel 9.27 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. It is an idolatrous image set up in the holy place of a rebuilt temple. It's an abomination, in a sense, of being supremely... It's a supreme act of idolatry. And it's a desolation in the sense that it will bring the judgment of God down upon man that we see in the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Now, verse 16, we're closing it up. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. So under this governmental system that the Antichrist sets up uh, with his associates, all will be given a mark. And without the mark, no one will be able to participate in the economy. You talk about suffering in that time as a Christian, and you, you, you don't want to participate in it. So how do you eat? How do you live when you cannot participate in that system? Hmm. By the way, you know, we have the technology now where they're, they're playing around with all kinds of stuff all the time, right? I mean, we're not far from having that ability now. We, we already have it. Verse 18, last verse, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. 
666 is the number of a man. The letters of Jesus in the Greek is 888. Okay? 666, we don't know for sure, but maybe a satanic counterpart to the name of Jesus. Or 666 may be God's evaluation of such a satanic counterpart, meaning it falls short. 666 is not 888, <laughs> which is perfection, right? Eternal perfection. Just know that the two beasts are satanic imitations. We're presented with a false Christ. We're presented with a false John the Baptist who proclaims the name of the false Christ. Okay? But in reality, Satan can't create. He can only deceive with imitation. He's nothing but a cat, you know, just a copycat. So instead of obsessing with fear and interest about the imitation, the Antichrist or the, or the false prophet... It's much more appropriate for us as Christians to be interested in the genuine. So, you know, even though Revelation 13 is an interesting chapter to study, we learn about these figures that are going to play out in the end. The reality is, what this speaks to me is, I just need to press into the Word of God and know God more. I need to know the Word more so that I can discern these things that happen on the earth. I am not, it's amazing how I can stand next to somebody who's, who's a believer and I can hear what's happening, and they're like, oh, wow, that's awesome. And I'm going, mm, mm, I'm grieved in my spirit. Something's not right in that. When I base it to the Word of God, it's not right. Now, if I get away from the Word of God, man, it sure feels right. Woo, that's cool, man. Let's do it. Knowing the difference. That's what God calls for His people. That's, that's how we... see. If you don't know the difference, if the light doesn't come on, there'll never be revival. Amen. God has to turn the light on. And see, what happens is man gets used to the dark. We start out in the light. Christians start out in the light. They get saved. They're so excited. The sin's been lifted, you know. They, they come into this freedom. And, and then after a few years, they're not in the Word they stop attending church. They're not in fellowship with other believers. They get caught up in work and trying to make work their, not that they would say that it's their God, but that's what happened. They spend all their time at work. And before you know it, there's no time for God. Now the things coming out of their mouth are anti-God. Let me tell you what happened in that person's life. If you had said to that person way back in the beginning, hey, man, be careful. You're about to go into the dark. He'd say, I'm not going to go in the dark. I don't want to go in the dark. I want to follow Christ. Nobody sets out to go in the dark once you're saved. But what happens is, little by little, the enemy wears you down, and you drift further away. And here's what's happening. The light is getting darker. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's it. That's it. Waxed over. And so now, all of a sudden, you're walking in darkness, and guess what? You see you don't see what can only be seen in the light. You see what's in the darkness. And when somebody comes along with a flashlight and they shine it on you, you get angry. Get that light out of here. I like the dark. I like what I'm seeing in the dark. I don't want the light. And that's well, So when God shines the light on sin and on sinners... When God shines the light on Christians that have, that have uh, walked away or who have wavered in their faith, that's a good thing. 
when a church is proclaiming the truth of God's word without compromise, that's like shining the light in the darkness. When you are honest with your friends that you love about truth and about light, it makes them angry. It's okay. Jesus said they're going to hate you like they hated me, but just keep shining the light. The reason the world hates me, Jesus said, is because I declare that its deeds are evil. I'm speaking of truth in the midst of darkness. I'm lighting up the room. When you come into the room, it lightens up. And what happens? That little group that was over there by the water fountain stops disper they, they stop talking about dirty jokes, and they disperse. Why? Because light came in the room. All of a sudden, now they realize, uh, do it more and more. Don't ever stop doing that. Amen. Let's save it. You know, we want to see as many people come to Christ before the tribulation, right? Yeah. We want to see Christians return to God, turn back to God. Some Christians... I'm afraid we're going to have to go into a 70-year captivity or something. I don't know what it's going to take for us to turn back to God. But, man, you know, God wants to redeem his people, and he wants us to be strong, that we can be a light in this world. Amen. So that's our call. I believe that with all my heart, and I'm committed to that. I want to do all, my, all I can in my personal walk and also as a pastor, and I know that you want to do the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that your word is truth and that we'll not find truth in this world. We're not, certainly not going to find truth in Hollywood. We're not going to find truth in the politician. The Scripture says in Psalm 40 that uh, blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust, Amen. who doesn't follow after those who lapse into falsehood. That's a description of a politician right there. We, we, Lord, in this busy season right now, may the church turn their eyes from po the political and turn to you find truth and confidence and peace and joy and righteousness in you, not in some candidate. Amen. And help us, Lord, to as we vote, to be wise and discerning and vote for the one that we believe is holding up more of a fear of God than the other, because that's what you want in us. You want us to fear the Lord. Amen. So we pray this in Jesus' name, Lord. May we be witnesses. May we go out because the Word of God has compelled us tonight by the Holy Spirit to go out and be light in a dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you, church.